Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 119 of the podcast, the topic is DeFi's impact on business and society. Our guest is Julian Hosp, CEO and co-founder of Cake DeFi. In this conversation, we talk about how it emerged and what problems DeFi fixes. We cover the problems in centralized finance, centralized control, limited access, inefficiency, lack of interoperability, and opacity. We then discuss the future of the DeFi industry. Julian, how are you? Hey, pleasure. I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing fine as well. Look, there's so much to talk to uh, you about, Julian. I don't even know where to start, but uh, I will start since it's my responsibility to kick this off. Let's uh, let's uh, work this a little bit. You you are not only a leading figure in crypto, but of course you you have a background as a kite surfer. You're also a doctor, and uh, you've written books. You're a speaker. You're you're doing all the right things. How did it all come together? Give me a sense of Julian as a five year old. Let's start there. I mean, most of the times I, I do the right things. Every once in a while, you step totally in the wrong direction. Um, I guess from a very young age on, I was an avid learner. I've always been someone who loves trying out new things. Um, and I think that's the the red lines through my life, if you want to call it. It's always been about uh, the world is your oyster. Um, be curious. Don't don't get comfortable in, in, in not growing. Um, so for me, it was always, um, yeah, I was always trying out new things, uh, learning, growing, and I guess in everything that I do, that's kind of the, a a premise. Did you know that sports was not going to be your only thing, even though you were highly successful at it? So my mom always tried to convince me. (laughs) She was always like, uh, Julian, that's not going to pay the bills when you're 40. You know, it's, it's, it's fun and great when you're 20 and there's, there's no one to take care of and it's just yourself. And yeah, if at the end of the month, the bank account just goes to zero and it's all good. But you know, once you have a family and a child and at some point you need to do something serious. Uh, yeah, I always, I mean, deep inside, I kind of knew that. Um, but for me, look, I was 17 turning 18 when I learned how to kite surf, um, for almost 10 years, I was paid to travel the world to see over a hundred countries to, yeah, to be gone for about 250 days in a year. I had this tagline on my Facebook account, your dream holidays, my daily office. And <laughs> it was the best thing that you could give a 20 year old. Um, I think there is no better time obviously to, to do that. Just live in the moment. I had, I, I really, I flew to Brazil, kite surfed there for three months. I had no clue how I'm going to pay for the flight back. But you know, the curious thing is I didn't even care. It, it didn't matter. And and it was so pure. Life was so pure. And, and, and that also gives me a lot of peace today. So I don't have to travel. I'm like with the COVID situation. Yeah, sure. I would have loved to leave. I, I live in Singapore today. I would have loved to leave the island. And, and but I, yeah, uh, it's all good. I've, I've seen so many things. So, yeah. Look, I think that that gives you an important confidence and balance, right? So you know you have a, a bit more patience, I guess, now than in your impatient, uh, wild, roaring twenties, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I wish. Uh, I, I wish I was a bit more patient. I think 
I, I don't know who always says this, but um, make your mistakes early. Um, like try out so many things, do your mistakes as early as possible. I lost all, I, I made tons of money in my kite surfing times just because I had so many great sponsorship deals. And, and I was just one of the first ones in that, in that market. And I'm, I lost it all with stupid decisions when I was 22 and that was a lot of money. I lost 80,000 euros. So about a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. I mean, in like looking at a, a real grown up with a family, maybe a hundred thousand dollars, is not that much capital anymore, but for a 22 year old, that's a lot of money. And yeah. I lost it all. And there were so many important lessons in there that, yeah, it's good that I lost it early. I'm so glad you shared this because I mean, you must be aware of this, that when you are very successful and, you know, the stuff you're doing now is successful and, you know, you, you come off as just very confident. It, it actually isn't, it's, it's like people are attracted to it, but they're also a little scared and they're a little annoyed. So I think it's good that you share that the journey hasn't exactly been always perfect. Hey, perfect is uh, far from, from reality. I made I don't know. I don't. Sometimes I'm like, wow. I don't know if I'm if I did more things right in life or more things wrong. And and I I don't know. I guess the good thing that the really good thing is if you don't do anything super stupid, right? That that is that has really like permanent consequences. Life is actually really forgiving in a sense that it you don't have to hit that many balls to to like to get to where you want to get. It's actually okay if you miss ten, and then suddenly you 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 see one coming, just perfect, and you just swing the thing, and it's a home run. And and life, like I, I people, I think people tend to forget that. Um, and 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 people after missing two balls, they get scared, they get discouraged. Um, and I I think that's a really like that was one of the things I just got to learn in life. Hmm. You have said that. Your vision is to bring to bring blockchain awareness to a billion more people by 2025. That's first of all a lot of people. Second of all, enormously aggressive timeline. Um, how's that going? Well, I set that goal in 2015, so it's now six years ago. Um, I was just coming, so I I worked and I worked as a medical doctor until 2012. And then I was just missing all these freedoms in life and, and being able to, to, to kind of travel and try out things and, and just, again, grow, be a bit crazy. And so for a bit, about two and a half years, I was kind of stumbling with uh, left and right, back and forth, not really knowing where I was going to end up. In 2014, I learned about blockchain. And in 2015, that, that ecosystem really got me. And uh, I started educating specifically the German-speaking market, but also the international market. And so I always said, you know, I need to do something that really excites me. Um, just having a YouTube channel, I don't know if that really gets me up for every video. Um, and so I said, hey, you know, what really excites me is over the next 10 years, there's a billion people who learn about blockchain um, because somehow I kind of helped them. And uh, yeah, that has always been driving me. Um, I would say that, I don't know, probably 90% of the German-speaking market <laughs> actually learned about blockchain and crypto because of my videos, because of my books, because of a lot of things that I've done, right? Will I get to a billion people by 2025? Probably not. But, you know, it doesn't matter because there's millions of people that got into blockchain and I probably wouldn't have touched those millions of people had I not set the goal of a billion people because I wouldn't have started. 
Uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. So you you do have quite a, a big following in both the crypto space and and in I, I think uh, other other places. A hundred thousand regular followers. You you claim is that kind of across all your channels? Like you, you know, a lot of it is YouTube. A lot of it is through. Uh, I mean, now it's almost a million. Uh, yeah, I've, I don't always update the the numbers. Yeah. I have now two hundred thousand on on YouTube, um, getting close to a hundred thousand on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Humongous email subscriber list. Yeah, huge podcast. Again, I would say seventy five percent is German speaking, and then twenty five percent is international. Yeah, it's across we'll get, all the various channels. Yeah, we'll get to some of the substance of it because you know it it, it is indeed actually. A field that needs education in the sense that it's moves, yeah. it's fast moving, super interesting. It's changing things in in the world. But um, how do you think of your role as an influencer? Do you think that uh, you have a special responsibility? So you know, once you've succeeded at at having a, a you know a fairly enormous reach, this is, is a great. That's a very big reach. What what is your responsibility? Do you think about that when you issue a new video? Like, have I really understood this? What people are going to do with this insight? Because influencers, that's the point. You you influence people's decisions, and these are financial decisions. They're not just, oh, I'm going to go buy a record by you know this artist. No, this is the real deal, right? It could be they're investing money that they would have put in their house or something, in, in based on listening to you. Yeah, I I mean, I don't see myself as an influencer. I, I guess I am, but I always see myself as a business owner. For me, social media is really a tool um, as an extension for my business. Um, when I talk about, when I talk about things, especially on a financial side, most of the time, or with most all the time, I actually talk about when people should invest, that they should invest in Bitcoin. Um, and I have... And and I talk about investing single digits in percentages of their own uh, of of their own liquid capital. I feel very comfortable that such a statement is, in a worst case, not destructive to their entire situation, and in a best case, really impactful to their financial situation. And so that's and 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 that's what I always kind of uh, expect. I kind of think through. I always think through. The worst case scenario that I'm gonna about that I'm about to talk, what what would be the effect, and what is the best case? And I try to weigh those, and then I always go a bit on the cautious side, simply because I know how people are. I tell them, hey, take one percent and put it into Bitcoin, and they're like, oh, he said go all in, and uh, and and then yeah. So I always try to to be on the extra cautious side. Um, yeah, on, on, and you see this and. All the, I mean, there's a lot of crypto YouTubers and a lot of, uh, and I, I guess the the biggest thing that I always get is that I'm, I'm someone who's super super rational. I I don't do daily trading updates. I always talk about a four year, five year, ten year time horizon. I feel very comfortable discussing these things. So when someone says, even at sixty five thousand, Julian, should I buy Bitcoin? I'm like, yeah, you should. You should put five percent of your holdings into Bitcoin. And I would say over the next five to ten years. I'm very, very confident that the prices are going to be higher than the sixty-five thousand, right? Maybe not next month, maybe not, maybe not in three months. And so that is just how I try to approach things. Hmm. Well, let's get into the meat of it. So, what is it about decentralized finance? First of all, how, how do you explain it to people, and what are the problems that this 
new system fixes? Um, decentralized finance is, in contrast to centralized finance that we know as the banking system, um, the, the, the traditional fiat, the euro, the dollar system, is, is everything is decentralized. And with everything, we're actually talking about six functions of it. Um, the very first one was what Bitcoin started to solve in 2009. It's basically creating value. It's creating money, but not on a centralized basis, decentralized. And uh, also being able to transfer that value. Um, and that's what Bitcoin does extremely well. I also tell people all the time, I would be very careful in investing into a project that claims to be better at, at, at that, at, at those two functions. I think that's very, very tricky. Um, and then we saw an extension mainly with Ethereum of the DeFi space, um, which was lending value, exchanging value, um, predicting value, tokenizing value. These are all things that Ethereum started doing. And obviously many, many other projects try to compete there. And, and, and that's just how I see it. So all that the DeFi space does, it started with Bitcoin. And now today we have hundreds and thousands of projects in that space who try to do those things in a decentralized manner rather than a centralized manner. And again, I always highlight here one thing. Uh, decentralization will always only win if trust in the centralized party fades. That is important. Bitcoin will not succeed if people trust the dollar, if people trust the euro. There's very little reason to have Bitcoin if people are happy with dollars and euros. Um, the same with any decentralized platform like Ethereum. If exchanges do a fantastic job, if the lending services work really well, there's very little reason to need decentralized ecosystems. And so to me, decentralized finance is always a bet on decentralized systems somehow not performing as well as people would hope they would. So I, I want to go more into the meat of, of this argument from a bunch of angles. But first, let's just uh, tackle the, the big one, which is, in the long term, if you're right, if if this actually hinges on some amount of mistrust in the existing system, aren't there there are many options here though? Because you know, central banks are now you know looking into this as well. There's a chance that the system will co-opt, uh, you know, at least some of the logic of blockchain into their system. It's not like it's not A or B. It's not you know centralized system versus a decentralized. Or don't you agree that there are many scenarios in which um, nation states start to issue and use it as part of their system whilst not necessarily getting rid of fiat currency? So, I mean, there are many intermediate scenarios here, aren't there? And, and what, would, what would that mean if that's the case? Um, okay, so let's define a couple of things. Fiat means that it's a centralized party that dictates the value. So the value comes from a from a point of authority. Whether that value is represented as paper money, as a digital form of money, or as stored on a distributed ledger is quite irrelevant. So as a, a, a like in on a on a di distributed ledger, we would call it a centrally backed digital currency (CBDC). Um, these are all forms of fiat at the end. And I am not of the opinion that fiat systems will go extinct. I actually think they will flourish. They will go on a blockchain. Um, they will stay centralized. Uh, things will still be priced in them. I do not see Bitcoin or any other form of a truly decentralized ecosystem to take 
over a centralized ecosystem. And the reason for that, and we see this all the time, is decentralized systems are only good at one thing, and that is you don't have to trust an individual party. But if you if there's no one that you can trust because you just trust the entire system, who's in charge? Who's taking control? Who is adapting to change? Who is growing? At the end, the only the only constant is change itself. So we will constantly change. So how will Bitcoin make sure? And we saw this, and this is the interesting thing now. Over the last three months, oh, last two months, we saw a completely new trend emerge, and that is the focus in Bitcoin on green energy, on the mining aspect of it. And that's a completely new topic. And this this topic was never really brought up over the last, I don't know, 10 years. And suddenly it comes up. So what happens? What happens is Michael Saylor steps up and says, let me take charge of that. Let me kind of create this council that cleans everything up. That is something, that's centralization. But it's is this bad? No, it just means that it, it just highlights the difficulties we have with a truly decentralized system. And I see this with every decentralized financial ecosystem. There's always, always change, always. And so will we ever see a mix? A, a mix by definition can't work. We will see parallels. We will see centralization and decentralization. And sometimes the decentralized side is more interesting, and sometimes the centralized side is more 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 interesting. The reason why I don't why I just don't understand how a mix would work, because a decentralized system that mixes with a centralized system will always become centralized. Um, and 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 so to and, and to me, there's no, nothing bad with this, right? Um, we governments. I don't see a way where governments will actually try to to use a decentralized form of money, which would be gold. I don't see them doing that because it loses a lot of the power that they have and that they use from a centralized fiat system. But that doesn't mean that it's either dollar or gold. Um, these things coexist, and I think that's really healthy and that's that's supernatural. But you need to have this escape route, especially in the digital world, and that to me is what the DeFi space actually allows. Um, I like the way you're arguing here because... I see a lot of the opposite by people who don't really think it through to the end. I think that uh, some of the fascination around decentralization generally comes from people who don't like centralization, you know, point blank, and who are assuming that this is going to kind of topple all of the bad centralized authority structures that they never really liked. You seem to have kind of I don't know, grown out of that idea in a certain sense. And you're, you're not really thinking of it that way. That is um, interesting. To me, I mean, I just know that at the end, you will always, I mean, the best example on why a truly decentralized system will not survive in the long run is the bystander effect. If you don't have, if you have two people in charge no one is in charge. And we have seen this over and over again. If someone needs help, the more people there are around, the crazy thing is, the lower the chance that someone will help that person. It's the bystander effect, been tested over and over and over again. So as long as us humans don't significantly change in, in the way we feel ownership, the way we feel responsibility, and I don't see this over the next couple thousands of years, truly decentralized systems will work for certain periods. Then someone needs to step up People tend to forget that. Satoshi stepped up at the very beginning when there was a, a, a bug, an integer overflow bug, and suddenly there were, I think, trillions and trillions of excess Bitcoins in the system. He stepped up and said, this decentralized system is going to become centralized in this very moment. 
Let's change something. Boom. Worked. All fine. Barry Silbert, people just blocked this out, stepped up in 2017 after years of debate on how does Bitcoin continue. He called for the New York agreement. Suddenly, Segway 2.0 was there. And boom, suddenly there was a change. In this very moment, centralization happened. And I think we're seeing the similar thing right now. That to me is nothing negative. It just shows that any system, whenever there's change needed, needs to have leadership. It needs to have people that step up that actually can make this change happen. Where to me, this true decentralized character comes in that people step up by merit. They don't step up by by authority. They step up by merit. And I think that's what to me is the is this is this true fundamental form that to me actually describes this decentralized ecosystem. And I think that's mm. the really important part. And we don't see this in many, many other ecosystems. Well, the big questions that I'm sure you cover on on your uh, shows is to discuss this idea that when something grows this fast, isn't there something murky here that we're not getting, but will eventually get discovered? Like, you know, there's uh, obviously Ponzi scheme thoughts. There's, you know, is this really value at the end of the day? How do you answer questions like that? They could come from many angles. They could be like, I don't understand it. So how how could it be real? It could be it grows so fast. So how could it be real? Or it fluctuates so much. How could that be real? How do you answer all of these critical questions? Or you know, will my mom ever use it? I mean, it's so complicated. How can it be real? There are many ways that you could kind of attack this and say this isn't real or it doesn't feel real to me. I, I'm always someone who tries to answer things from a very fundamental standpoint. Um, that's what you do in medicine. Um, you don't try to treat a symptom. You try to, you try to treat the disease and then you actually try to treat the human being. And so you need to understand a lot of things fundamentally. So for me, the very fundamental question here is, is there value in, in Bitcoin, for example, is there value in a decentralized financial system? So let's ask ourselves, what's value? First of all, value always lies in the eye of the beholder. There's no absolute definition of value. Uh, this doesn't exist. Um, value actually comes from three things. It comes from the utility something has. It comes from the number of people who need that utility or who like this utility. And the last thing, the scarcity of that utility. And that describes value of everything. The reason why people are so have such an easy time valuing stocks is, especially cash flowing stocks, because the utility of that is cash. And the, the, the utility of cash is very clear to most people. It's cash by definition is a scarce resource because otherwise it wouldn't be valuable. And pretty much the entire world agrees on cash being valuable. So it's very easy to at least understand that a cash flowing company has value. And then the only dis discussion is how much discount do you give it? How many years in the future do you calculate it? And that's an entire science as of it all. But that's why it's so easy. So as soon as we have to things that are not cash flowing, especially in the financial space, it gets very, very tricky to define the value there. And that's where the question then really comes, is this a Ponzi scheme or not? And no one is able to clearly answer it because the value or the utility there is very subjective. So where I see the, the utility of Bitcoin is really that decentralized gold character. It's something that's scarce, verifiably scarce. And on the other hand, that more and more people agree on it being useful and being scarce. And what's the useful part? It is that I can send value 
on the internet digitally without a trusted intermediary. And that's completely unique. There's nothing else. Obviously, there's a lot of copycats, but there's nothing else that we know of that can do that. And so now the only question is, what, what, how high is that utility? And, and that's now where the price fluctuation comes from. That utility is very difficult to grasp because if you are in the US or if you're in Europe, the utility of being able to do that with PayPal and with credit card payments and with instant bank transfers and with Venmo, the utility is debatable. But as soon as you go into more war battle zones, as soon as you go into more authoritarian zones, as soon as you have to be a bit more protective about your assets, about like your assets being seized, that utility straight away shoots up. And so that is where a lot of the emotional value comes in. And that's what makes it so difficult right now for people to price. And that's also the reason why there's so much fluctuation. Over time, I think we're having a way easier time in understanding the value of it with the utility side that the emotional character goes away more and there's more reason in it. But we still see it with gold today, which is which has been around for thousands of years. And I don't think there's anyone out there who says gold is worthless. We can we can discuss what the actual price is, but I don't think even a Warren Buffett, who's a gold critic, says gold should be priced at zero. I don't think he says that. I think the question is, should it be priced at $2,000, at 1000 or 500 or 10000 He says he doesn't know, and that's why he doesn't buy it. And so I think with Bitcoin, it's going to be a similar idea. At the moment, people are still debating Bitcoin's price being zero should be the fair price, but I think that's going to go away and we're going to go more into a sense, okay, should it be priced at 10,000, at 100,000, at a million? That's going to be more of a, a debate going forward because the utility character becomes clearer. Well, I mean, you have a great point about potentially what this could do for, I guess, the unbankable, currently unbankable people and you know the developing world's economies generally. Do you think that is going into the calculation of how um, you know, m- maybe more wealthier countries are thinking about the rollout of this of this uh, technology and 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 utility because literally, if I mean, if you are right and this is a a, a real thing that can transfer value, you, you know, in these sort of currently unbankable situations, it, there's an enormous amount of value waiting to be unlocked, even if it is very little for each individual. If it is growing. You know, the, these are many people who don't have access to any kind of growth capital. So even if it's growing from zero zero point three to zero zero point five, you know that's massive for an enormous amount of people. When when will decentralized finance be uh, globalized in that sense and and truly be accessible to let let's call it the world's unbankables? I mean, you're making a really great point. And I would love to expand this, like you mentioned in, 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 at the end of the part of the question, to the true DeFi space, not only the, the first two function sets, which are creating value and transferring that value, which is what Bitcoin does, but really to the exchanging. That's a totally different ballgame. Um, exchanging means on a blockchain, I can give you A, you give me B, and you only get A if I get B. That's a game changer if this happens decentrally. Um, the lending side of it, right? That's uh, the predicting side. It's just absolutely insane. Um, when will we hit on a global scale? I think it always comes down to the pain point of leaving the current system. That's always, I think, a, a bigger factor than just 
uh, an attractive an attractive alternative, you need to have pain in the current system. And you see this all the time. You see this in Venezuela. It's so crazy when you go on Reddit and you see those Reddit posts about moms, for example, posting there how they invested their Bolivares into Bitcoin all the time. And now when they had a child, the reason why they could go actually into a hospital and get their child born in a hospital and they could pay for all those things, that was because they didn't get bogged down with the inflation of the Bolivares, but they could actually pay with with their Bitcoin that kept the value. That to me is just absolutely insane, right? Someone in the US or someone in Europe would probably not share such a story because there's not enough pain to go out from the current system. So it always depends on the on the current system that that is not functioning right, right? So if you ask me, how does this work on a global scale? On the one hand, it will depend on the pain that people have from the current system. And on the other hand, obviously, what's their educational level and their access level? Someone that already doesn't have in- access to the internet, and there's still a lot, a lot of regions in the world that don't properly have access to the internet, they will not have access to a layer on top of the internet, which is a blockchain. So that's just not possible. Uh, but other than that, it it's inevitable. Um, you will have more and more movements into this ecosystem because every central system, every centralized system, as good as it may be, at some point it screws up. At some point, it makes a mistake. One thing that a decentralized system is just not really good at is fast decision making. It's super slow, which is a downside and upside. A centralized system is really quick at decision-making. So, and no one makes perfect decisions all the time. So at some point, someone makes a mistake. And that's when it's always a good escape route to have this decentralized system. Jillian, uh, you talked about some of the shortcomings of the current centralized system, but we've also talked about some shortcomings of the current DeFi systems. uh, I mean, one of them being that it, it isn't a globalized system yet because it does rely on technology that is nascent and that is somewhat complex and it's certainly compute hungry which is expensive and you know arguably over the last few months where the world has become more sensitized to to green issues and you know these massive server parks and all of that stuff so there are some issues uh there there might be some security issues certainly some people would claim that there have been hacking scandals uh, there's exploits. There's, of course, also the chance that the, you know, if the majority of actors on these chains are uh, malicious, right? The assumption is, even in the algorithms, is that the majority of actors have to be benign. If the majority of actors actually turn out to be malicious, then then even even the blockchain protocols have have a problem, don't they? So, give me a sense of what you see as the biggest shortcomings, and what are people in the system or outside it trying to do? To fix it, and you know, we can get into cake, cake, uh, you know, as as part of that. Yeah, I mean, the biggest shortcoming uh, is uh, access. It's um, and it's actually a two sided thing. On the one hand, um, it's identification towards the blockchain. Um, it's so difficult to identify yourself uniquely towards thousands of servers without an intermediary. And the only way we do it right now is through very long, randomly generalized numbers that we call private keys that through cryptography interact with other private keys or public keys and generate new sets of numbers and and and, and we can prove and verify. And that's how we do it. And and for example, I mean one of the short-term steps here, right? For example with Cake DeFi, what we do is we have all those DeFi services 
lending, staking, liquidity mining, uh, tokenization, like really, really exciting services that the majority of the people cannot really access. So what we do here is we provide a platform that allow people to access those services and it shows exactly how powerful this is. We started two years ago. We have close to a billion dollars of customer funds with us right now. Um, in, it's just insane growth. But again, on the long term, and that's something we actually really think about as a company because we know that as a long term, it's actually not a, a viable business model. For and, and, and the funny thing is Coinbase knows it themselves. Coinbase filed that in their filing, that in, in their IPO filing, that they will have to change their business model because it won't work in the long term because more and more people will learn, right? So this is also something we know. And, and I guess the long-term thing, right? And I think that's probably the, the absolute magic. That would be the, the kind of magical touch to everything would be how could you identify yourself in an easier manner towards thousands and millions of servers? Um, I think no one has a right answer right now because we all don't really know. Um, any answer that you would say, fingerprint or iris scan, always has some centralized technology in, in, in the middle that can be tampered with. So it's really, really tricky. No one really knows the answer. And until we have, people will have to use uh, private keys. And obviously, the longer Cake DeFi is going to make great money and the, the more time we have, provide a great service to our customers and and until we figure out what we have to change and adapt. And I mean, we have ideas, but um, that's a general problem in the ecosystem. Hmm. So Cake DeFi is a Singapore-based and you have, you had, uh, like you said, experienced enormous growth. How do you explain that? I mean, the current clients that use Cake essentially are, are relying on this intermediary to understand and to exploit and to kind of I guess monetize and 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 you know use you as a as a platform service in some way um what do your clients say about why they why they use you because there are many many ways they could access this this system and they choose themselves yeah even or even just doing themselves Is, um, so your arbitrage is the complexity. So in a certain sense, you're you're sort of hedging that there's there there needs there is this complexity, and for now it exists and it's real, and uh, and it's stopping a, a big group of people from from doing it on their own. One hundred percent. I mean, one of the services we provide, for example, gives people a hundred percent per year on their crypto. One hundred percent. When people see this, they always think, oh, that must be a scam. That can't be true." The thing is, what they don't understand is it's, it would be the same in the banking world. If a bank, if there was the only bank who could do, provide a lending service, they would make thousands of percent in return because they would be the only ones because there's such an, an, an information arbitrage that people can do. But now there's hundreds and thousands of banks. Suddenly there's competition and more and more people and, and all the interest rates gets diluted basically over all those people. Um, in DeFi, it's exactly the same thing. The more people, the more capital understands what's happening, the lower the returns go. And we have seen this. I remember um, at the very beginning, about half a year ago, when we, for the very first time, we offered those really crazy high return services. We were at tens of thousands of percent. It's absolutely crazy. So now we're at 100%. And I forecast the growth we have over the next one or two years, those percentages will go into the 10 or 20%, definitely way lower because more and more and more people, more and more capital will use them. 
Um, so the first thing, obviously, is, as you mentioned, it's the user experience. It's way easier to use us, and, and customers share that. Um, but then the second thing, and I think that's where, even in the future, and that's what we're going to focus a lot on with the company over the next five or 10 years so as a long-term business model, is to be this one-stop hub that gives you access to a lot of things. And that actually has a lot of merit because um, we are blockchain agnostic. Um, I don't see a, 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 a world in the future where there's only one blockchain to rule them all. I think we'll see more and more blockchains. So it will need those hubs that actually bundle those together where, yeah, some people say, I don't have a problem storing 25 different wallets and, and dealing with 25 different systems. Um, that's fine. But I think the majority will just say, oh, you know what? That's just such a hassle. Um, let me just go on one place, one stop. I have access to so many things. Right now, we only offer cryptocurrencies. But uh, actually, in Q3 this year, we want to start with stocks and precious metals and commodities. And so suddenly, we're going to start opening up the entire kind of uh, exposure and system. And I think that adds a lot, a lot of value uh, to the customer that just doesn't want to have 60 different things, uh, but it's this one stop place. Yeah. So, so what is your, who is your main uh, customer? These are not individuals. They're more exchanges and other actors that are using your service. Actually, it's the, a typical retail customer. Um, a lot of people call us the, the Asian BlockFi. Um, so they, yeah, they, uh, I, I, I hope that by the end of the year, they call us more the, the Asian Robin Hood or an Asian kind of uh, wealth front or something. That would be kind of the, the expansion we would love to have, uh, not only in the crypto side. But for us, um, yeah, a, a typical customer has about, I don't know, five to $10,000 with us. Um, yeah, they don't do any trading because we don't. We are not an exchange. We don't offer exchange service. They are the typical long-term kind of focused person that says, "Look, I have those ten thousand dollars. Sure, I want to take fifty percent on those per year in return." Some say, "No, you know what? I want to have way less volatility. That's way too crazy. Just give me five percent." Um, and some say, "No, I YOLO. I need a hundred or two hundred percent." And so, um, depending on that, um, they have different options in how they're gonna they allocate their cryptocurrencies. Um, that's the typical kind of customer. Um, obviously very Asian focused because of my influence. We have a lot of Europeans. Um, yeah, very, we do have a few um, Americans, but very, very few, not the, not the uh, main. And how, how do you typically allocate people's, uh, money? What are like, uh, you know, option A, B and C. So w if I wanted to go to the risky route, wh where would my, uh, money be stored? I mean, or the riskiest would one it? would definitely be liquidity mining, uh, simply because you have to allocate pairs. And the main risk is something called an impermanent loss risk, which means if one of those currencies moves extremely to the other side, you just lose a lot on this exchange rate. And so, yeah, it, 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 it helps if you kind of allocate coins that generally move in the same direction. But uh, obviously, if you would uh, if you allocate the less volatile coins, the return automatically is lower because more people use that. And so if you go more the high risk route, the high return route, you generally have a bit more volatility. Um, so that is definitely the, the more high risk, um, the lowest. And But again, you can get 100% plus per year. Uh, so everything comes, there's always a flip side to it, right? And then you have the more lower risk, typical lending, similar like uh, what BlockFi does. And that's on the five, six, seven percent per year. Um, yeah, quite straightforward. Um, some of our customers may call it the boring route, but uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, very straightforward. Not many surprises. And then in between, you have the shades. Uh, you have staking that sometimes goes into the 20, 30, 40 percent, some even a bit higher. So that's kind of the, 
the range there. Yeah. People have to choose for themselves. So that's also important. We're not like a fund or uh, people really have to kind of make the decision for themselves. That's also from a compliance perspective, very important that the customer actually has to make a decision what they're doing. Jillian, I want to I, I talk about future use cases for uh, decentralized finance and, and, and blockchain platforms. You, you, you're a physician yourself. There uh, is a big discussion on vaccination passports at the moment. You have sort of even just uh, healthcare data and patient data questions. What are some of the more advanced use cases that you think that this platform is ideally suited for or could be tweaked to uh, engage with? Yeah, I mean, the entire medical side, that's what got me into blockchain in 2014. That's what I actually would have loved to to build. I would have, like the vaccination passport, that was actually my, literally, that was my business case in 2014. When I was pitching to investors, everyone thought, that's just stupid. Like no one will ever use that. But to be fa- to be frank, had I started then, I would have not made it until when it was needed, right? And the first time this, this discussion came up was about half a year ago in 2020. So I would have not made it. So it would have been a stupid idea because the right idea at the wrong time is a stupid idea. So um, yeah, so to be frank, it was a stupid idea in 2014. But I, I still think that in, at the end, it's more of a, a supply chain question, right? That's actually what it is because what you're doing is you are tracking an item and in this case, a human being, um, you're tracking a, 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 an item status across various steps. And so basically what you're doing here is you're tracking the vaccination first and that gets produced somewhere. So that's actually like this entire vaccination de- debate then goes away. And then you're tracking the human being and somewhere they meet. And then from that on, other steps happen. And so um, it's more of a supply chain question, more of a business development question rather than a blockchain question. Um I think that's going to be massive in the future. I think a lot of this stuff is actually going to happen, especially when countries have to work together and no one wants to have the other country be in charge of the data. And so suddenly everyone can be in charge of the data. Actually, everyone else, everyone themselves is in charge of the data, um, especially with with data privacy. So to me, that entire medical topic is... I mean, it's huge right now. The, the only thing is, I don't think a startup will actually do it. I do believe governments will have to um, got, kind of set this up. Interesting. So the future of DeFi for you is um, is full of these use cases. Where, where do you think, uh, who do you think governs w- what's going to happen? Is this also a decentralized process? You know, w- which use case is going to, is DeFi going to move to next? Because you know clearly, all of these basic financial uh, use cases are going to take a while to sort of shake out through the system. And so, some people I talk to are sort of saying, <clears throat> "Let's get those right first, and then we'll move to those other areas much, much later." What are you? What's your thinking there? Yeah, I think <clears throat> the, the the killer kind of application right now is a bit more. Um, integrations and interoperability of a lot of those use cases because at the moment everything is still a bit siloed for example i'm involved in a in, in a, in a or i'm contributing to a, a blockchain project called defi chain really focused on various defi use cases for bitcoin um and what the community tries to do there is really kind of 
interoperability between Bitcoin and many other kind of DeFi use cases, but there will be so many others, right? We have Cardano and I don't know, we have the BSC ecosystem, but the question there is going to be, what's going to be the interoperability there? Because then this entire siloing is going to go away. So if you ask me, what's the future there? The future is really more this interoperability because then suddenly you can actually track things in a completely different manner and you have you need to trust fewer parties because suddenly the, the, these decentralized databases can actually communicate info among each other. And to me, that's, and I think we're actually seeing this right now. We see projects really focus on this interoperability, focus in, in this direction. I think that is really, really key. Um, yeah, and I mean, we're trying to do all these things. On, on Cake, we're trying to be blockchain agnostic. Um yeah, all the ecosystems that I, for example, invest my personal money in, uh, Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, DeFi chain, a lot of these things are are projects where I also try to f- to see this openness to kind of experiment, to to explore, to go further. I think that's really, really important for the ecosystem. Hmm. Um, if you just m- will m- muse a little bit with me on 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 sort of this journey that decentralized finance has been on can you can you understand that there still are people who are sitting there on the sideline waiting to get in or or maybe not waiting to get in they're sort of saying well i've seen this before with other things i'm usually <clears throat> not risk averse but this just sounds too crazy to be true and 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 it, and what is your message to to people who feel that way i would say they're right um because just like in anything most of the time, only one to two to three percent actually survive, and ninety nine to ninety seven percent die off. Uh, we saw the same thing during the ICO bubble in two thousand seventeen. Um, most of the people lost a lot of money in there, and they were right saying that all these projects went to zero. But some of the biggest blockchain projects today are part of those one to two to three percent that survived, and that's just like in any ecosystem. Uh, that's in any startup, that's whatever you do, 95, 96, 97% of those projects don't make it. If you're an angel investor or a VC investor, you know those numbers, right? And you invest accordingly. Uh, many retail investors just go and say, oh, this project, oh, for sure they're going to make it. And I'm going to go all in on this one project that no one has ever heard of, but you believe they're going to go to the moon. That is why, and I mentioned this at the very start when we talked about the influencer part, I believe if you want to have, and again, I don't even think Bitcoin is a done deal, right? At the moment, I would probably give it a bit higher than 50% that Bitcoin is still around in 10 years, but I I would not give it a 99% chance that Bitcoin is around in 10 years. So to me, it just has a very high likelihood right now and very likely is a 60% chance maybe, you know, so investing accordingly. Um, So to me, that is the project that I would take if you want to have the safest of them all. And again, there's a 40% chance it's gone. Um, and I, I want to be that clear on that. So just keep that in mind um, in, in all of that. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's very fair. I mean, if, it, if there was no risk in this, then you'd be a complete idiot to stand outside. But because there is risk, I mean, truly, you, you need to decide what the risk profile is. The question, of course, is, is the regular person uh, in a position to have the data to actually assess the risk? And I think that that really is the, the big question for, 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 for all of us. I mean, 
100%. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And that is also why I will hit down on the same point. It's the point that news outlets don't want to hear. It's the point that, I don't know, other influencers don't want to hear because they want to have the, the next best thing. But at the end, Bitcoin is your safest bet. And I would also, and to couple down there, I truly believe having 0% Bitcoin allocation is the same mistake as having an overly exuberant allocation on a never heard before coin that's just all your money. So I think both are silly mistakes. They're uneducated. Um, to me, it doesn't matter how old, how young, what your financial situation, there should be an allocation. If you are in the investing, if you're interested in investing, if you're actually looking into investing, you should have a Bitcoin allocation. We can discuss, should this be 0.1%, should it be 5%, should it be 10%? That's discussable. And I would start with a lower number. But yeah, any any statistic you look at, any kind of analysis that you look at, it's very clear that Bitcoin is an, a non-correlated investment. It reduces the volatility of your total portfolio while actually increasing returns. The numbers are are as straightforward as it, as it can be. There's no opinion on this. This is purely statistical and mathematical. Now, of course, no one knows what the future will bring. That's why play it a bit more on the safer side. But any other decision there, and you can see this, Ray Dalio is moving in. Uh, there's more and more of these super large investors who, want, who, who start to understand that. So, yeah. Thanks, Julian. We, we could go on forever. This is, uh, it is one of the fundamental discussions of, of this decade, but perhaps also of the next, right? So thank you so much for, for this. I hope I can check in with you later. That there seems to be enough volatility that we can we can have this discussion, you know, every uh, month, every year, if you want, because th there will be a very different spin on this, even just a year from now, for sure. I mean, so thanks. Of course, now it's end of May. Crypto just dove almost 50%. So yeah, appreciate it, Trond. Hey, really great. And uh, yeah, if anything, anyone wants to reach out, I'm on Twitter at Julian Hosp. Uh, would love to hear and yeah, always looking forward to getting feedback and questions and, and yeah. looking forward to help. Great. Thanks a lot. You have just listened to episode 119 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondar Nunheim, futurist and author. The topic was DeFi's impact on business and society. In this conversation, we talked about how DeFi emerged and what problems it fixes. My takeaway is that DeFi is now more than a niche phenomenon. It is already in the real world of finance, used for payment, currency creation, and credit scores. DeFi must, might just alter banking as we know it, but don't count out centralized institutions taking a key role in its rollout, since blockchain can serve many purposes, including contribute to maintaining the status quo. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 99, Blockchain Uncapitalism on Desktop PCs, episode 59, The Tokenization of Securities, or episode 44, The Future of Open Finance. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.